Hi, everyone. It's Mandy. Before we go into it, patrons, you are everything. Thank you so much for being supporters of the show, supporters of the Restorative Grief platform everywhere it's found. Because I've been doing this for a while now, but I tell you, running with others makes it so much more enjoyable. So if you're interested in all the premium content, exclusive interviews coming up, or even just supporting the methods and the work because you know it makes an impact in your life and in others, then we would love to have you join us. Check out the show notes for links and that's that's it. Let's get into it. <laughs> Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 67 titled What Happens When We Die with Jesse Dice. I'm really excited for you to hear this week's episode because Jesse is a licensed clinical social worker I met through Twitter. His work has always resonated with me because frankly, he isn't afraid of pushing back on harmful narratives around loss, grief, death, and dying. Our conversation was sparked by a tweet of his about a general lack of grief literacy among professionals because we misunderstand faith-based practices as the only source of true comfort in the anticipation and aftermath of loss. Now, if you've read my book, you'll know that I do consider myself to have a faith-based understanding of grief, but I'm also a professionally trained educator and have a lot of literacy as a humanist as well. Some of the problematic statements we hear as platitudes or impersonal well wishes are often rooted in the belief that beliefs are the only way to survive loss. So I'm excited you'll get to hear his perspective and hopefully allow this conversation to expand your understanding of grief literacy and what happens when we die. Before I go any further, though, a content warning. Toward the end of the interview, we discuss death by suicide and the complications that come with understanding and grieving this type of loss. Please listen with discretion. Well, good morning, Jesse. Welcome to Restorative Grief. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. I was really, really looking forward to connecting with you because I followed your work on Twitter for quite some time. And I think as a voice in the grief world, if we can say that, I really admire how you tend to be provocative in a way that is important and helpful. I think that you you push back in a, in a meaningful and gentle, but very insistent and purposeful way. And so I just really appreciate your perspective. I'm really excited to talk about life and death and dying and grief literacy with you today. We are those weird people that really like that stuff. I know. <laughs> That's exactly it. I was just thinking about death and dying and grief comparison yesterday, because of course I was, and I was a little put off because I wanted to have this conversation about grief hierarchies and and nobody wanted to talk to me about it and I just thought what the heck why does no one want to talk about this <laughs> just because it might lead to some existential crises doesn't mean we don't talk <laughs> right yeah exactly just because this one thing you want to do like you want to have an easy fix and I want to say there's no such thing but I'm with you let's dig in and have no answers by the end I don't understand why you're so reticent to talk to me okay whatever <laughs> so anyway it's lovely to have you. For anyone listening who's not familiar with you, why don't you give us a little more, a little more context of who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, I'll do kind of the bullet points. Um, I graduated with a master's in social work with the intention of going into uh, therapy, and I've done that, but 
I stopped by medical social work after graduation. Mm. And so I am coming off of eight years and working in a medical setting, doing supportive care and then doing therapy with uh, oncology uh, patients and their families. So Mm -hmm. people going through cancer experiences. But a lot of my hospital experience was in palliative care, um, gerontology, general medicine randomly because they kind of house them all together. Mm-hmm. and then oncology and so I, that was very intentional wanting to work in grief and that's what I did my thesis on was grief mm-hmm. um, related so I kind of found myself where I want to be but through some pathways that I didn't really realize were going to be there yeah. um, and so I've been in private practice now for uh, going on almost three years now and I'm still pretty invested in grief work and also cancer community. Um, And then, yeah, I do anxiety and a lot of other stuff too. I dabble in anxiety and depression from time to time (laughs) myself. So (laughs) maybe from the other perspective. Um, Gosh, I love this because it's, you said something along the lines of if your grief literacy or your understanding of grief literacy doesn't include the atheist community or the humanist perspective, you may not be as grief literate as you think. What I loved about that is we are bombarded with Mm -hmm. this idea that the afterlife is the source of comfort and a strong faith practice or set of beliefs or foundation of uh, otherworldly or supernatural understanding is what carries us through grief. And so I am so excited for people to really not just feel like that's not true. And you can't say that anymore. Kind of the way that Merry Christmas had a weird bit where people Mm. were like, Oh, we can't say Merry Christmas anymore. Okay. Happy holidays, I guess. And it became subversive Mm. to say Merry Mm. Christmas. Anyway, I, I worry about people in grief support positions going down that road a little bit and gaining some bitterness and picking up along the way, this lack of connection to their grief people that they're supporting. So I want to hear from you just starting off, like what it would look like about carrying hope in a situation of death and dying or grieving a loss without a framework of religion. Yeah, that's a good question. Honestly, hope uh, is something I was thinking about a lot last night, prepping for, for this just mentally. And it's something that I talk about, I'd say probably the most with any of my clients, whether it's grief related or not. Uh, Hope is a very complex and loaded topic for a lot of us. And we, I mean, we have hopes for ourselves within losses. And then we have people who have hopes for us in losses, which is also another dynamic that's uh, interesting when we bring in, what does this look like without religion where I guess on a, on a more personal note like I remember this is before grad school uh, my dad died a year before I went to grad school and I come um, from uh, my family was not just not religious it was almost just like not absent I had some education around it it just wasn't talked about <laughs> much So like truly when you think of the word atheist, I guess that's what it was. (laughs) And so like, I remember feeling uh, not in place doing something like Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts. I was like held in the basement of a church. Like I just really didn't have a reference point. Uh, Other people seemed to get it. It was kind of on the outside. I didn't have, I didn't share this 
uh, shared community. And then I realized around when my dad died that it, I had a similar experience with how people would express their hope for whatever solace or peace I can find. In, in my loss, uh, feeling similarly maybe outside whatever this community or in-group or whatever we want to call it is, where whether it was statements of like, I hope he's at rest now or, at, or now he's not in pain or peace, whatever it was, um, that he's in a better place or sometimes it's just like brief references to being healed or like, yeah, there's a lot of references that I just quite honestly did not know how to grapple with, but I knew that it wasn't resonating. I found that that complicated a little bit. And I see this in my work too, where it complicates a lot of how we carry hope. Just think about how we're supposed to carry hope within grief, what that even means to us. And for myself, I would say that hope was more broadly like, and how do I stay connected? And I guess that's how like I frame it and how we, we end up processing hope in a lot of different contexts in the therapy that I do is what are the connections we're talking about and what does it look like to act on them, preserve them in any way um, and keep them present. And uh, I think that that goes into probably a lot of the psychoeducation that we give people on grief is that this is something that you don't just walk away from and things go go back to whatever that means so that means we do something right and that also conjures up like okay if we're doing something or still kind of being with this what is my hope intention and way that i do engage with this and so, yeah, whether it's like a hope for being connected uh, to whatever loss in whatever way that looks like, or a hope for our own pain to be something we can open up to and make space for and, and ride those waves. I think that that's where I see a lot of the language going with people who probably don't identify with any religious affiliation, um, which I would assume, and what I see does still apply with people who do have religious affiliations. Um, are these kind of broader values that we connect to. Coming back to the initial question is, how does hope show up when we're talking about this without religion? I love when you said, how do we remain connected and present and preserve our connections to who or what we've lost in any way? That is one of the foundational principles of the work that I do with people as well. Mm -hmm especially when it comes to the spirit, because we're whole people in my perspective, we are whole body, mind, heart, spirit people. And when those are out of alignment, when one of those is out of alignment or all of them, we get wonky and we start grasping at straws and grabbing whatever theology or mentality sounds really meaningful in the mm -hmm. moment, which is a great survival tool. It's a great, it's where all of our coping mechanisms come in and get really comfortable, but when it comes to spirit or the sense of the spirit within us, I've always defined it as connection or disconnection with self, mm -hmm. with others, with our world around us, and even with our understanding of a higher power. And so, yes, cultivating hope and connection and recognizing that there are areas of disconnection 
and that's uh, natural, that's natural, is really powerful and meaningful work if we can find a way to embrace that. So I'm curious how you would encourage someone within the atheist community to cultivate connection after a loss, um, specifically because I remember in my own experience, when my mom died, it was almost seven years ago now, there was uh, an individual who wanted me to sit and go through a prayer practice. And I was heavily involved in the evangelical church at the time. Um, and it was really, really disturbing. It was a meaningful, loving act. Like they care about me to this day, but I remember being very uncomfortable because one of the things that they said was, well, you can carry on your relationship with someone after they have died. And I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. My connection isn't entirely severed. But then it became this, I don't want to say imaginary game because your imagination is powerful. Mm -hmm. But what was hard was this idea of the prayer creating fantasy and becoming a place where I could stay Mm -hmm. and not progress or not find Mm -hmm. integrative healing because I'm continually pursuing this, this imagination world where I didn't feel like I was going to have a pathway forward. Absolutely. I think it's very parallel to um, how we use mindfulness, relaxation, meditation exercises too, where I think that it can be used to bring us into intentional ways of being and like finding whatever it is that's meaningful action going forward. It can also be used out of avoidance and if grief brings up anything it's definitely avoidance it's kind of like i want to hand people badges and be like congratulations you found avoidance i'm really proud of you you need to find it but you need to identify it so that you don't stay there yes so what does it look like then for someone to like what's one of your favorite go-tos of that kind of forward motion integration practices outside of you know imagination and prayer i mean i guess it can be playful in some ways um even in the depths of the the, this grief and sadness is that even as an atheist or anybody who's religious i'm working with we're not a monolith so we are all going to have very different history and experiences coming into this so i'm not going to assume even if i feel like i can heavily attune or identify with parts of a person's experience of what may feel like it resonates. And I will usually start off with the caveat of, listen, this is probably, there's going to be parts of this. It could be really strange to do because guess what? Loss is a very strange, vulnerable, naked feeling. And so there's no, unfortunately there's no normalcy to be found here, whatever that means to you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Good. We're, we're, in the, we're in the arena at this point. And so yeah. I might, as we like process how do you stay connected what does that look like to act on that what are the important parts of the relationship that we're trying to keep intact in some ways i will kind of just say up front that there could be things here that really just like don't resonate at all or maybe even great on you we can drop it and that doesn't mean that you're grieving wrong or or right it's just we need to find the thing that fits you and this specific relationship too and so some of the things that i think that uh do resonate i guess just to give um kind of the variety here is 
many people are probably familiar with like the empty chair exercise that we do in therapy and it's kind of used in other capacities too but just to briefly go over that for listeners um there's a lot of reasons why we might do this but in brief work i might use this exercise where you literally physically have a chair and that's also in the room with us where we invite the person that died to come in Mm. and to have intentional conversation maybe some things that were left unsaid or things that you wish you could kind of or the yeah you hope you could kind of keep alive in some way or another or articulate and express and like have that and so when we do that really experiential process I find that one it can't like for people that it doesn't feel so strange that it takes them out of being able to get any benefit from it um, that I, I find that when they when we are able to engage in that way it's not just having this really moving and difficult kind of conversation and grieving that moment usually that's a pretty good representation of what we take out of the room too of oh so this is what it's like to maybe talk to this person who's not on this plane anymore and i know for me like that's a really strange thing kind of still is in some ways and i totally get it and i it's huge it's moving um but i think that like some of it's almost like the practice of like what does it feel like to talk in that way and sometimes it's through letters um sometimes it's through inviting some um the the person who had died into an event or into a experience um just kind of uh putting a bunch of experiences together here um I, I hear a lot about travel being a big thing that people find another layer of loss in uh like it, getting those experiences in and so sometimes we will consider like it's not going to be the same it can't be right what would it be like and how would we invite this person to come with us for this ride whatever that means yeah so yeah Hmm. this reminds me so much of the way people start to recognize that they've created a ritual in their grief and how it can be so restorative and helpful especially outside of a faith practice yeah i love that representation of the empty chair because it can be uncomfortable and i think that it's done well or when it's done well it really releases permission for people to continue like you said and take that into different areas of travel or of family gatherings or their school day or work day or whatever that is and feel, feel very uh, present with their memories and their experience without having that weird sense of everyone who has died is watching you from the heavens right now all the time. Um, because I think that there's a, it can get really sticky and our theology cannot keep up with our experience and our understanding and our even our nervous system reactions to the things that we encounter. Yeah. So yeah. I'm curious with that like mindset, like how have you seen in your profession uh, people who do have strong faith practices really stumbling through the grief process or how has it um, mm. kind of held them back or created created barriers to their opportunities to find healing it's a good question um i guess kind of more the surface level part of that like when i was in the hospital i 
part of the job, but also just I would have anyway, was working alongside chaplains a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, for anybody who's not familiar with that, that role, it's not that a chaplain is practicing from any particular faith standpoints, um, but they, they usually do have their own identified faith um, and are very well versed in many and how to access that in a lot of this work. But I would definitely see a reaction um, when somebody absolutely was not welcoming of having faith or religion in these really difficult moments enter the room and the chaplain then became that person of designated faith that mm -hmm. we, we cannot exercise that from them. And so this is not happening. This, mm -hmm. this conversation is shutting down. And um, I, then I kind of became the designated secular, even though they didn't know that about me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> non-affiliated non person coming in. And so this is not just chaplains, and I'm not referring to anybody in particular, um, but I think that when I've noticed uh, discomfort with some of these interactions or some of these things that just don't land, I've noticed the person who is supporting somebody in their grief work um, leaning harder into something that's creating more of an impasse. And that can look a lot of ways, but I guess that if somebody is maybe communicating frustration, anger, or just like misattunement with a chaplain, for example, or anybody else for that matter, offering if they would like to pray about mm -hmm. something around this loss, if there is even what the um, funeral or plans are and all those sorts of things that come up mm -hmm. probably more specifically in the hospital setting because that is kind of mm -hmm. right there in front of us too. Uh, yeah, I can I can see people like I, I can feel the thickness in there and the distance um, when that first attempt is rebuffed and then the person in that support role uh, may back up and ask about something. But then ultimately, it's almost like this is the tool that I have and this is kind of the process to try again. And it kind of results in even more kind of entrenched places of being and so like I'm trying to think of an example or if it'd be helpful in that way when my dad died he was in the hospital for nine or ten days and we had everybody and their mother like on on the team supporting him because he came in cardiac arrest was not responsive and intubated the whole shebang and so neurology the kidney docs the icu team everybody's involved and um we're all talking about a lot of the clinical course and then this does go into the grief part of what's already happening is talking about quality of life and what are hope comes in what are the what are the wishes that we kind of lean into here and there was a lot of paralysis in conversation with a lot of these providers wow. um, when it was talking about the more existential, the loss, the grief, the wishes and hopes here. It was very stagnant in that way of putting together clinically what our hopes with who is my dad, what is he wanting in this situation, how are me and my mom grieving at this time? 
remember some passing comments of not outright but but just like some some things that just did not resonate with us in that way from a lot of the medical staff and they were great uh clinically speaking uh with my dad and it was a chaplain that came by eventually which who i wish they referred to much sooner into this experience who i had a reaction towards initially because it was like hold on <laughs> you have some religious paraphernalia going on i don't know what's happening <laughs> um <laughs> who uh, offered her to speak with us, took us into a back room, and it was great because she didn't do, I think, a lot of what ends up happening when we're trying to broach this conversation using whatever faith background we might have in this and that la and the language that comes with it. And instead of, of almost hunting and pecking for the right words to use so we can kind of marry these two ways of being, she simply kept it at who I'm trying to understand who are... are my dad is what his mm. personality is what his values are what he all that sort of stuff and offered space i think to be in this very uncertain time offered space to try to connect with them even though he's hooked up in a different room um and i think that she spoke to um I guess a lot of what we were talking about before where it was more so understanding like what is the best way we can care for this person who for all intents and clinical purposes is gone mm -hmm. right now um, and, and what would be meaningful in that way. And so it was a lot more education based, I guess, around some of this stuff. But yeah, I know I'm kind of answering a question you didn't ask. No, um, it's brilliant. Go. <laughs> um, but it's just kind of it's striking to me how it how we open the doors, I guess, to have these more well-rounded feeling conversations when we don't either don't know somebody's faith backgrounds or get a strong impression that this person's atheist agnostic or mm. whatever and um yeah this is really beautiful and stuck with me i love that you mentioned she was trying to build connection and connection points for you by asking so many questions because mm -hmm. that is what i have experienced in yes. my work uh, around grief literacy specifically with faith context and faith communities is this idea that meaning is created by a shared understanding. And so if I say the platitude or I share the scriptural thing that is meaningful for me, I'm ascribing meaning to a situation that I have no understanding of. And, and really it's the griever who creates the meaning about the grief yeah. event. It's our experience and our understanding of what is happening in our lives that helps define what becomes meaningful and what actually creates comfort. And so I love that I have so much respect for chaplains. I actually couldn't do that job. I get very uh, defensive and protective. I'm very justice driven. So I get really angry really fast when I see people who are vulnerable being harmed. And in this setting, um, that spiritual bypassing is so quick to surface. Uh, so I love that that chaplain had training and understanding about how to just show up as a representative on behalf of like a connection doula. Maybe that's yes. what we should rename chaplains as. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. The uh, title in itself ha absolutely has connotations, I think, that are hard to get over initially. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It is. It, but, but yeah, you're you're right. And you named something that I think I was trying to um, <laughs> articulate, which is when you you see somebody trying to like name the meaning rather than open up the doors to asking questions about somebody's experience yeah and and using their own language yeah around it um and so even even though it might feel kind of trivial even talking about the place somebody is in currently mm. who has died that can be loaded for a lot of people yeah um and be a very hard concept to even say i, I that we can engage with I think that there's been a lot of to resonate with like maybe somebody isn't in pain anymore if that was a part of their life. Um, but I would say that without some of the religious background, it also doesn't maybe feel, I suspect, the same way the relief or at peace, whatever that means. Yeah. And so some of those things, I think we can have some things that feel pretty shared, but we can make some missteps in some of the assumptions that can come out of out of that and that goes for also something else that I was thinking about too is how much we see religion and faith background as a protective um, hmm. uh, entity for grief and for suicidality or like a lot of things we, we we see it as a protective entity and I absolutely do agree with that I think that some of the danger that's omitted is somebody who does not have this I wouldn't see as having a risk either yeah that's a really great way to put it so I'm going to ask you I'm going to pose something to you that I see commonly and I'm curious how you would respond if I say my friend died um, I'm just taking care of their family and it's making me think about things and someone would say perhaps to me I just can't imagine how people get through life without having an understanding of God. Yes. How do people navigate grief without the comfort of the Lord? Would love to hear how you could respond to that in a way that's helpful, that doesn't create division or disconnection, right? Because again, even in that, my heart so is to create connection. Parallel reaction where I love my grandmother. She's still alive at a hundred. Um, mm. And something she said, which I know feels very similar to what you just said is talking about like, if you don't have kids, they just don't understand what there is to life right. in that way. And it's a very similar feeling of like, without faith, how can you right. get through this? How Right. Well, <laughs> it's this like, there is a bucket and an expectation of what having a full life means. And if you can't meet those yeah. things, then you've clearly failed at life. Again, very, very bad yeah. binary thinking there that touches on so much harm. Yeah. And I guess like just the thing that feels very obvious to me is that the connection, I don't think feels any, necessarily has to feel any difference mm -hmm. without religion when we're talking about a loss when we're talking about grief because and I, but I, I wonder how much that's a connotation is mm. if I don't have a faith background then it's just done mm -hmm. and I honestly see a lot of um, atheists also perpetuating this in some ways and internalized stuff that I know that we carry with us with um, yeah so they're in the ground where we you know mm -hmm. did cremation whatever we did and then they're just 
one with the world and it's just like over just black just mm. done and if that feels very binary to me too of just like there's a hard period here where that's that in a very kind of pragmatic way which feels very limiting and so I guess I would say like the um dogma the faith background the whatever we're ascribing to the afterlife here does not have that much of a bearing on the connection and how we carry a relationship and I and I do this for both like I reckon I would say this to somebody of faith but I also recognize I help other atheists unpack that too because yeah. we carry it yeah. in that way of like almost like this uh starting out um with a fundamental loss of uh not having maybe what looks like or a, a blueprint to do this yeah. in some way and and then it's kind of an unpacking of like now we're we're actually all all lost some people just use different language <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I think our humanity is too easily separated when we engage faith practices, which I feel like that summarizes what you just put out. Obviously there is the same level of complexity and humanity involved in death and dying and in grief work, regardless of your personal dogmas or belief system. And so, yes, there's a, there's a softness that we can still approach ourselves with that we may not necessarily see if we're um, using our faith as an armor and and relying on very black and white thinking around it to survive and to to even define ourselves and how we show up. Uh, yeah, speaking of which, I have a question for kind of along those same lines. How have you in your own life, but also with people you work with, recognized the expression of grief and the way we treat ourselves, if we don't have a faith practice, if we feel like, well, the world around me really wants me to have a funeral and have mm. prayers and have platitudes and have all of these traditions when not only do I not find that valid, I just don't find it meaningful. How, how do we give ourselves permission to do what is meaningful for us? There's a lot of, um, shoulds that come up about grief even though we are maybe in a space of admitting we have no idea what we're doing we're lost in it there's still these expectations that are kind of hidden or silent that i think that we feel like we're not performing the way mm -hmm. we're supposed to um and so i i mean yes this is it has its own layers i think with um atheists but also even people of faith I, I i notice a lot of how we should be doing something coming up and unpacking that as well mm. um but but yeah like i um to use a word that one of my good friends also on twitter uh hayden uses a lot hayden does um permission to i think giving her give ourselves permission to find what is a meaningful ceremony to honor somebody i use honor um a lot mm. i think in my dialogue of like how would you honor this relationship whatever that looks like for you um and if it's a particularly like complicated relationship mm -hmm. um where maybe the that even feels feels strange i think that 
we also recognize that too, that this, the relationship hasn't all of a sudden changed context and, and what, what it has been when somebody dies. Yeah. And so we don't, like, I, I think that a lot of what is internalized is not speaking ill of the dead and, and having certain practices around how we acknowledge and honor the dead. Um, and so, yeah, it really feels like almost every single time if it's a new experience for somebody is unpacking whatever it feels like we have learned about how we should be doing this. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know statistically if this is true, but I feel like that I've been seeing more and more people maybe doing things that feel like they have a little bit more broad context, like life celebrations. Um, uh, yeah, just kind of different ways of honoring people that maybe aren't talking about like very traditional funeral based ways of going about this. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think the shame and the shoulds uh, get very loud when grief enters the chat. And so recognizing ways to dismantle that language, but also give ourselves permission, like you said, to honor, but to pursue what is meaningful is incredibly life-giving in a way that we just, again, we've detached ourselves from that need for permission. We feel very comfortable shooting on ourselves because it feels like safety and security when the reality is, I don't know how to tell you this, but very little is safe. Nothing is secure. And there certainly is no certainty. I have one last question that might be kind of activating. How would you, for someone within the atheist community or without, with someone carrying faith practices, help a person who is grieving a complicated death by someone who died by suicide, how would you help them form meaning and create permission Mm -hmm. for themselves to honor when they might feel offended or angry in a way that it's complex. It's a different level of anger. It's a different experience of grief when the person has died by suicide. Uh, Mm -hmm. How would you help them navigate that experience? I think that, um, and you, and yeah, you very well could be right with how there is maybe less layers to how complicated um, that grief is in the atheist community. Um, but I'd say that there's probably more shared than not. And the way that I, I would talk about that and find myself addressing that is through uh, disenfranchised grief or marginalized grief, um, where this loss is feeling like it's somehow tainted in a way where even within the very few spaces where we maybe feel comfortable talking about loss it's going to be taboo in those spaces and so even though somebody might not have the uh belief that this family member is now in hell or being tortured or like whatever terrible thing or maybe even fearing um that they're uh community now has some sort of um mm-hmm. shift in a relationship with them which i think can be maybe part of it right. like being ostracized um i think that uh atheists and faith-based alike we can appreciate that this is a way that we are going to be disenfranchised and experience it that way in this community and a lot of times people don't even understand that layer of what that means so i will often tell them like we usually know what taboo means so like 
Yes, it makes it even harder to feel whatever natural emotions are coming out around this and whatever um, ways that it has impacted your relationship. It makes it even harder for you to feel like that you can have those emotions and and, right. and recognize and honor those in their own ways too. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that that is definitely where I start. And then it gets back to like opening those doors of trying to understand the experience with this particular person of what has, what has the ripple effect been for you? Has it felt like you can't go back to uh, your church or synagogue or whatever? Has it felt like that you have been more isolated in this already very isolating experience? Um, does it feel like that it's complicated the connection you have with this person who has died mm -hmm. in that way? Cause yeah, it's has its own layers there too. Yeah. I hear you saying validating a person's individual experience is crucial for helping them create meaning and finding ways to honor, especially when a grief event has been disenfranchised or invalidated by everyone around you or minimized because of a belief that you carry that now is in conflict with your actual lived experience. So before we dive out of here, because this was a really rich and beautiful conversation, I would love for you to just share if there's anything you're really excited about or working on right now, or if there's um, how people can get in touch with you if they're interested in learning more about your perspective or just coming along for the grief literacy education that you are offering and putting out into the world. Yeah, uh, I, you can find me on Twitter. It's definitely where I'm the most active still um, with just putting out random thoughts there. Most of them do happen to be related to grief. Uh, and that's at BRB Health. And uh, for uh, Blue Ridge Behavioral Health, which is my practice, but I'm with a group practice. Um, and you can also find, I'm going to try to revive it a little bit here. BRBHealth.com is the website. And um, so I'm hoping to continue to put resources, write a little bit more. Um, on there and I guess kind of connecting things a little bit more and I'm not really sure what this will turn into, but one thing that I did record more recently was using a Venn diagram to speak to attachment and relationships. And when we lose somebody, how we can understand and carry on this relationship or internalize parts of it through through that attachment experience and, and how we represent that in this Venn diagram. And I'm probably going to be continue to work on that in different ways as I go along. So, yeah. That's beautiful. Jesse, your perspective and embracing the conversation around how to bring comfort and honor to the humanist perspective of grief is really crucial. Um, I think we mentioned it off air that, or at some other point, there's just so few resources <laughs> and so few uh, conversations being had around the validity of grief outside of a faith community and outside of that experience. So I am grateful for your work and I'm grateful for, again, like I said, the way you're pushing back and saying, nope, there's, there's more than one way to do this. And I think it's creating a lot of health for people. So thank you for spending time with me today and for being who you are in the world. It's wonderful. <laughs> thank you so much. And what you said is very beautiful too. Like I, to, my last thought that I had that is really um, 
moving from what you said is that there's um in the in the atheist community even that there's this sense of uh i'd say like another loss almost mm-hmm. with feeling like that we don't have spaces where we talk about this very much yeah and so i think for both faith-based and atheist i uh, we need to be talking more we need mm-hmm. to be creating more spaces for more community more connection yeah um so that we don't almost feel like we are complicating everybody's grief. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting too. We could keep going. I'll be careful here. <laughs> so just to kind of put a cap on this conversation, we're not just positioning Christianity versus atheism. Again, binaries are not helpful. This is any level of faith experience, not even versus in conjunction with a loss of faith, a lack of faith, a misunderstanding of faith practices, an appropriation of faith practices, all the different angles it can take and how it affects the way that we move through grief as individuals. And I think you're right. Those open more, opening more conversations and avenues to have that interaction with one another is, is a very meaningful pathway forward. So thank you for listening to episode 67 of restorative grief. I find Jesse's work to be so invitational in nature, making space for us to ask questions, grieve intentionally, and even become playful in our grief experience is transformative. And if we want it to be full of meaning, I think whether you carry a faith practice close to heart or none at all, you are always going to be an individual with deep humanity worth exploring and understanding. Grief literacy is another pathway into wholeness, and I'm so grateful you are listening and hopefully gaining some compassion toward yourself after this conversation with Jesse. If this is your first time listening, a hearty welcome and hello to you from me. Please make time to leave a glowing five-star review, of course, and subscribe so you never miss a weekly episode. Our longer interviews alternate with shorter essays and reflections on grief, so there's always going to be something you can find here for support. And speaking of support, don't forget, you can become a monthly patron of the show, subscribing here on Anchor directly or for an extra benefits through Patreon. There are bonus ad-free episodes along with many other episode styles and resources for you made available once you join as a patron. And to be honest, this show means nothing without you as a listener. So either way, please accept my unending gratitude for your presence here. And as always, one last thing before we go. Please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.